fields around Bethlehem when an angel suddenly appeared to them and announced the birth of the Lord Messiah. And once his announcement was completed, the sky seemed to fill with supernatural beings, all chanting glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Just before that, in verse 13, so Luke chapter 2, verse 13, we read, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. Now let me give you another translation of that verse. And out of nowhere, a great number of the heavenly army appeared with the messenger, praising God and saying. So the NIV retains the, the famous King James translation of heavenly host, but host meant something different in 1511 when the, the King James Version was published than it does in 2016. People reading that back in 1511 would have understood what the shepherds saw in the sky that night was an army. Heaven's army. Think of what must have gone through their heads. The true king. Not someone in that pretender Herod's line, but the true king, a, a genuine descendant of David, had been born, and God's dispatched a company of the heavenly army to guard him. What the shepherds saw that night outside Bethlehem had all the earmarks of an invasion under cover of darkness. If that's what the shepherds were thinking, imagine what the devil and his angels thought. The birth of the baby portends the coming of the kingdom of God. Heaven was launching a major offensive. How should they answer? Think of this as a, a contest of strategy like chess. The trouble with playing chess with God is that he knows what you're going to do before you do it. Not only that, he knows what you're going to do before the game got started, before you got started. Heaven's made a move. Hell must answer. Only this isn't a game. This is the real thing. No rubber bullets now. Heaven has launched an offensive. Hell's compelled to launch a counteroffensive. The adversary ordered the counterattack. But as always with the adversary and those under his control, he attacks with lies and half-truths deceit and manipulation. Those are the weapons of hell. And when we use them, even in a good cause, for our country, for right doctrine, even for the sake of the church, we're in trouble. Every time we use the devil's weapons, the devil uses us. See, when we use lies or half-truths or deceit or manipulation, we're in his pocket. And those who think they're an exception only go to prove how compromised they already are. Let's look at our text, the story of the Bethlehem invasion and the counteroffensive. It's Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read this is I'm going to read a long section of scripture here this is a story and I want to give you the stories. So Verse 1 down through verse 16. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. 
In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So one of the people who sided with God's adversary was Herod the Great. There are a number of Herods in the Bible. This is the first. This is the friend of Mark Antony and of Augustus Caesar, the friend and sometimes adversary of Cleopatra, Herod the Great. Now, you have to understand, Herod did not think of himself as the devil's minion. But who does? He considered himself justified in taking the actions he took. Right? Who doesn't? But one of the worst things about being on the side of evil is that you entirely mistake it for your own side. It was when Herod was king of the Jews, that was the title that was conferred on him by the Roman Senate, though in reality he was the ruler of one jurisdiction within a larger Roman province within an even larger Roman administrated region. It was when he was king of the Jews that Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem asking for the location of the one born king of the Jews. As we've seen before, that idea that a, that a born king of the Jews had arrived on the scene upset Herod. He was the king of the Jews. Now, not rightfully. He wasn't born into the line of King David. And for that matter, he wasn't even a Jew. But he clung tenaciously to that title. And he was insanely protective of it. Whenever he felt that his title was threatened, which happened more and more often as he grew older, he reacted violently, murderously even. No one was safe when Herod felt that his position was threatened. No one. Not his wife, not his sons, not his mother-in-law, and certainly not some child that these foreigners were talking about. That's why Matthew says that Jerusalem was disturbed. When Herod trembled, Jerusalem quaked. Herod 
was a deadly weapon and a willing one in the hands of God's adversary. He didn't care about stars. He didn't care about magi. He didn't care about God for that matter. He only cared about himself. And that's what made him and can make anyone a ready tool in God's hands. I mentioned last week that there were some scholars and the list of characters in the Christmas story. We read about them in verse 4, when he, that is Herod, had called together all the chief people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Christ was to be born. Herod called these men because they knew the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. You would think that their suspicions would have been aroused by a request from Herod. I mean, how often, really, did Herod go to these guys and say, I got a Bible question for you? Probably not very often. And especially after the arrival of a caravan of magi asking about a king. Maybe scholars in those days were like scholars in our day. They don't keep up with the news. If they had, they might have been hesitant to give Herod an answer. Herod, who had executed his oldest son by his first wife, executed his second wife, Miriam, her two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother, all because he suspected them of plotting to take his throne. And now he comes to these scholars and says, where is the one who's supposed to be born king of the Jews, or the Christ? Where is the Christ to be born? And these scholars told him just where Christ was to be born. And you should note, by the way, Herod heard from the Magi that the king of the Jews had been born, but he asked the scholars where the Christ had been born. See, he understood that the coming king was the Christ, and the Christ was a king. These scholars told him that he'd be born in Bethlehem because of the ancient prophecy in Micah. Now, Bethlehem's about five miles from the old city of Jerusalem. That's not much more than an hour's walk. As far as we know, though, these scholars didn't bother to go pay homage to Christ themselves. Even though Bethlehem was so close and news that the king had been born was all over Jerusalem, the king that everyone had been waiting for, they were satisfied with studying the Bible and talking about it. And so these scholars also served the evil one. Their Bible knowledge brought harm, not good. And you know what? The same thing happens today when people just talk and talk but don't act. People who have lots of Bible knowledge but ignore Christ in everyday life always do more harm than good. Always. Once Herod knew where to look for the baby-born king, he summoned the Magi and told them to make a careful search for the child. You should read that in Greek, too. It uses two words instead of one. And it's like, carefully and precisely search for the child in and around Bethlehem. And then he asked them to report back to him so that he could go and pay homage to the rightful king himself. But of course, all he really wanted to do was kill the child. So think of it. Here is this man who intends to kill the long-promised Messiah for whom Israel has waited forever. Not because he didn't believe in him, but because he did. He was determined to frustrate God's plans. He was willing to hurt Israel, the country that he ruled, 
to, and to deprive the world of God's Savior. He was ready to do vicious, heartless deeds to secure himself. And he could do all this while avoiding any thought that what he was doing was evil. Or that he was evil. It's ironic, really. The man who didn't want to be ruled by anyone, including God, was mercilessly ruled by his fears. Which is another way of saying he was ruled by the devil. That's what happens when we won't be ruled by Christ. There really is a choice to make. From the perspective of the evil one, the counterattack was proceeding according to plan. Herod was well in hand. The religious scholars were entertainingly in the service of God's enemy. The one who was born king would die an infant and evil would triumph. Or that's how it seemed. But if the priests and religious scholars who were supposed to be serving God were in reality serving the enemy, the magi, these idol-worshiping pagan astrologers, were serving God. Who would have thought it? See, God cannot be stopped, not by the will of kings, not even by the will of fallen archangels. He can't be outmaneuvered, outwitted, or outdone. In the end, the devil himself will be forced to serve God's purposes. The Lord alone is God. I'm going to get back to the story in just a moment, but I want to pause here for a second. Because I know when people hear about the sovereign power of God, they can feel an internal dissonance. If God's so strong, then why did my little boy die? If God's so powerful, why won't he do anything about what's going on at work, even though I've pled with him to do so a million times? If God can do anything, why didn't he do the one thing that would have made life bearable for me and my family? And the answer to those kinds of questions is, we don't know. See, God is not only so much stronger than us, he's also so much smarter. We don't know. But I do know that God has not yet eliminated evil from the world. If he had, we would have been among the casualties. Because we're not ready for that. We're not yet complete. Well, we are and we're not in a strange way. But we're not yet complete. It's the Bible's always reminding us. We don't just have evil around us. We have it in us. I know that. But I also know that God is changing that. He's more interested in making you and me holy than he is in making us happy. Or perhaps I should say he's more interested in our eternal happiness than our momentary satisfaction. He's shaping us. He's filling us out as people who can live under his rule. We can't make him do what we want. If we could, we'd be God and he wouldn't be. But we can cooperate with him in becoming people who are good and true no matter what's happening in us or around us. Now, I know that's what God's doing. But I don't trust God because of what I know. I trust him because of what he's done. I trust God because he gave his only son at Bethlehem and then again at Calvary. I trust God because there's no limit to the lengths that he will go for our good. I trust God even when I can't understand him, which is all the time. I trust him because of the cross. 
When the Magi didn't come back to Herod, he realized he'd been duped. He, the king of the Jews, the brilliant strategist, the ingenious builder, he'd been outwitted. He was furious. If he couldn't find the one child who would take his place, then he'd kill all the children who might take his place. He sent troops to Bethlehem with orders to do exactly that. That heinous act became known as the Massacre of the Innocents or of the holy innocents. The harm Herod did to those families and to the soldiers themselves that he sent is incalculable. You imagine soldiers bursting into the homes of villagers and shepherds without explanation, but with long spears and sharp swords and killing every little boy under the age of two and doing it right before the eyes of their mothers and then turning and leaving. Imagine what it did to the soldiers to do that. Bethlehem and the surrounding hills were filled with unspeakable horror, inconsolable grief, and unquenchable quenchable hatred for Herod and the Romans that he represented. Their children were dead, and you know what their only crime was? They resembled Jesus. Someday that may be a crime again. You know, if nothing else, this passage ought to remind us that we live in a dangerous world where evil is ever present. We live in a war zone. A war our father, Adam, got us into and our savior, Jesus, will get us out of. Terrible things happen in war zones. There's suffering and sorrow Innocents die, but we have hope because a baby was born in Bethlehem. Herod sent the soldiers, but the child king was gone. This is verses 13 and 14. <clears throat> An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. The child king was born homeless and became a refugee. I told you earth is a war zone. Evil's done its worst. First the massacre of the innocents. Then forcing the king's family to flee to a country that didn't want them. Jews were not particularly cared for in Egypt. And when the child became a man, evil challenged him at every turn and finally sent him to execution on a cross. And where was God while all this was happening? He was making evil serve his purpose. He was receiving the holy innocence into his presence. He was using the exile of the Holy Family to fulfill his word through the prophet Isaiah, out of Egypt I've called my son. And when evil men and the powers behind them nailed Jesus to a cross, God used it for the salvation of the world. God can't be stopped. When St. Peter finally realized that, he told the people who crucified Jesus that he was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead. Evil nails Jesus to a cross, God raises him from the dead. Evil does its best, God outdoes it. That was true in the first Christmas, and it's true now. 
So let's bring this home. I know this is Christmas. This is when we get all sentimental thinking about a little baby wrapped in swaddling, but I'm inviting you to think instead about a great God, the same God who foiled wicked Herod, who used the desperate flight to Egypt to fulfill his word, who used the worst thing the world ever did, crucify the Son of God to bring it salvation, who used the death of Christ to end the reign of death and begin the resurrection. This God is our God. He hasn't changed. Yes, evil's real. Bad things have happened and they'll continue to happen. But this is your God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you can trust him. You can't understand him. But you can trust him. Evil will continue until he finally puts an end to it. It will continue but it will not win. Not in our lives. Not in the lives of those who belong to Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. God, we gather around a manger and a little baby. little baby held in his mother's arms. But we see a great God. Lord, help us to translate this from what we're seeing in the text to what we're seeing in our lives. Give us grace to trust you no matter what's happening around us. And trust what you're doing in us by the work of your Spirit because of our Savior, because of the cross of Christ and the one who hang on it, Jesus our Lord. We ask for this in his name. Amen.